0: once you're in that experience the muscle memory of just being in the theater and and just being so singularly focused takes over and it's truly like truly just missed it so dearly i didn't really realize how much i missed it until i was having the experience again
1: this is the box office podcast i am daniel laria the editorial director of box office pro the only publication in north america exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition. Joined once again by our co-host Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor at Box Office Pro. We've got an exciting episode today with the filmmakers that make up the Radio Silence team. That is the team behind Paramount's new sequel to Scream, coming out on Friday to a theater near you. They'll be joining us to talk about the most important title from now until mid-February at the box office. We'll also be covering the usual box office news and updates from across the industry. To get started, Rebecca, how was the latest weekend here in a New York City where everything kind of feels like 2021?
2: Yeah. I uh, Daniel, I had in my list of to-do things, I had like two movies that I wanted to go out to see in two different theaters. I mean, I, three, three rep screenings that I was very excited to go to. And then uh, snow started and the weather got cold and COVID numbers uh, continued to go up. So I did not go to any of them. And instead, oh, no. I uh, stayed indoors and played a lot of solitaire, which is Not exactly as as, as mentally stimulating, but...
1: No, that sounds like prison, actually. That sounds like someone in prison might have done over the weekend. But hopefully we'll be out of these confines soon.
2: Is that not the case that we're in right now, Daniel?
1: Slightly. I I, I ran into a car last week and broke my only pair of glasses. So I couldn't see anything. I was like Mr. Magoo, just bumping into things. (laughs) Didn't really get to see or read anything. It was uh, not the best weekend, but I'm excited because this weekend, and we mentioned this at the top of the episode, one of the franchises that means a lot to me in my own connection to going to the movies, to getting into movies, the latest installment is coming out with Paramount releasing Scream. And we've got the filmmakers of that movie joining us. Rebecca and I will be chatting about what that franchise means to us, a little bit of its history. We've also got a ton of news to catch up on. Let's start with an update on the closures. Rebecca, we've got closures in Europe still, but two of the markets that have been out of operation since December are expected to come back online in the coming days.
2: That's right, Daniel. Uh, The Netherlands and Denmark are expected to allow a number of industries, including cinemas, to reopen in the coming days. Uh, That's already happened with Belgium, which was briefly closed. Um, We'll we'll definitely be keeping an eye on any information released by our friends at Unique to see how those Reopenings proceed. On the flip side of the reopening, good news, bad news equation, Ontario and Quebec, two key markets in Canada, remain closed. And actually, uh, Daniel, next week we'll be having on the podcast, Vincenzo Guzzo of Cinemas Guzzo, joining us on the podcast to share some more about how the uh, Canadian market has progressed over these past few months. I'm really excited to uh, to speak to him. He's, uh, he's a very passionate person about this industry. So um, I'm sure that'll be a really good interview to listen to next Thursday.
1: Very opinionated, very open. Of course, Cinemas Guzzo, one of the most important film circuits in Canada with a special concentration in Quebec. Quebec currently closed. We'll be catching up with him to get the latest on what's happening in that market and what these latest rounds of closures means for Canadian cinemas. But in the meantime, where cinemas are open, it looks like Spider-Man No Way Home still keeps on reaching new heights. Rebecca, the movie has now crossed $1.5 billion globally. That's without China, the number eight film of all time at the global box office. How did it do this weekend domestically?
2: No surprise to anyone here. It did maintain that number one spot with 33 million. It is the number six release of all time on the domestic market and number eight globally. You know, it, it hasn't worn off. I still feel that little spark of it's hard for me to identify what this feeling is. Joy, hope. Haven't felt it in so long, but <laughs> reflecting on how this film is doing, I, I get that positive little spark of something. Also on the positive side, we have some specialty releases, a Licorice Pizza and Parallel Mothers. I know, Daniel, the latter, Parallel Mothers. For both of us, that was one of our favorite releases of last year. Um, they continue to have uh, fairly solid holds as they continue in, in the specialty market uh, on the less positive side, we do have Universal release the three Five Five, which opened in third place to four point eight million from around thirty one hundred screens. You know, we've talked a lot about films that have been kind of delayed, 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 and then begin to feel quite stale. and and I think that uh, that assessment definitely applies to this film.
1: An unfortunate start for a film like the three Five five this is one of those films that we've talked about just has kept on getting delayed on the release calendar, finally hit screens, probably not an optimal time, but performs really around where titles like American Underdog have opened at in the market, trying to sort of find a niche in the shadow of Spider-Man No Way Home. I wouldn't call this opening weekend a disaster, considering the situation that the market is in, but it's certainly not uh, an important boost in the domestic market. And while we talk about that domestic market and the cinema recovery, Rebecca, another piece of bad news coming from Disney, Turning Red, which was scheduled to release in theaters on March 11th. It was going to be, I guess, the next milepost in seeing how these family-friendly titles were going to be performing after a continued improvement from titles like uh, The Adams Family sequel. We also had Encanto. We also had Sing 2. Those titles had started to perform better and better. We were looking forward to seeing how Turning Red would do in mid-March. Now, if we want to see it, we're going to have to subscribe to Disney Plus, the third consecutive Pixar movie to go straight to streaming. What was once a blue chip franchise, uh, let's say a guarantee of quality, is now part of the Disney empire that brought you 102 Dalmatians and The Return of Jafar straight to streaming. uh, Extremely disappointing decision.
2: It's just a bewildering decision to me. I mean, obviously, you have to imagine that Omicron is part of that decision. Um, You know, Encanto came out at a time and did quite well in a time, and and continues to have good hold. um, You know, in in a period when maybe the numbers weren't looking so dire. So, okay, you wanted to push it to streaming out of an abundance of caution. Who am I to say don't do that? But my God, they could have gone day and date with it. They could have given theaters the option to scream it. If I were at Pixar, if I were one of those last three sets of directors, we have three sets of directors now for Soul, Luca, and now Domachis turning red, going straight to home video, I would... I, <laughs> I, I'd be feels, furious. So let's, I let's... would be furious. <laughs>
1: And we've been to Pixar before. The junkets they put on are amazing. They're probably among the best in the industry with the access they give you. Every time we go to Emeryville in California to meet with the filmmakers behind these titles, you can always tell how passionate they are about movie going, about these being these great big cinematic experiences, original stories. Like you said, at this point, I think Pixar has to look at its talent and start asking questions on how to retain people when family movies are working well in other studios, but Pixar really isn't a priority for Disney at the movie theaters.
2: Well, Disney Animations and Canto goes to movie theaters, and, and Turning Red, they don't even get the option. Uh, it, it is one of those things that we've talked about kind of before about how theatrical for streaming outfits is a way for a lot of these streamers to really attract top tier talent, retain top tier talent. You know, you look at the director, Domei Shi, who did Turning Red, she got that film off the strength of the short film Bao, which I really love.
1: It's a great short film. That's a Pixar short that I think a lot of audiences really loved, and more people got to see that at theaters than than are ever going to be able to experience her first feature film on a big screen. Just incredibly disappointing.
2: Pixar really had this pipeline for up-and-coming talent, from their first short to seeing their first feature film in theatrical and That's really looking to be no longer the case.
1: And without turning red on the release calendar, it's really going to be up to Warner Brothers, the Batman coming out on March 4th to really help boost the first quarter box office when it comes down to it, a a very difficult first quarter of the year, but we've mentioned it in last week's podcast. April starts looking a little bit better. And then by the time you get into May, June, July, the box office really should begin writing itself, getting a little bit more stability. It's going to be a long wait until then. And I think that's one of the reasons why we've been seeing circuits embrace concepts like the Cinema Entertainment Center. This is something that we've uh, written about in depth here at the magazine, uh, the Cinema Entertainment Center concept of bringing in bowling, bringing in arcades, bringing in dining, all of these out-of-home destination ideas and activities, bringing them under one big roof, including movie theaters. We've been seeing that grow in popularity over the recent years. Uh, we profiled it in our CinemaCon 2020 issue. You can find the link to that story in the show notes. Rebecca, we have a big piece of news when it comes to the existing players in that niche.
2: Yeah, one of the major players in that niche, Evo Entertainment, has acquired ShowViz Cinemas. Uh, Those are both two big players in the cinema entertainment center space. Um, With the acquisition now, we're looking at a chain with 16 venues, boasting a combined total of 148 screens, plus bowling lanes, restaurants and bars, a uh, 3,000-person capacity live music space, and over 30,000 square feet Um, gaming and assorted attractions across uh, Florida, Oklahoma, Wyoming, and of course, Texas, where the cinema entertainment concept has really grown over these last two years. This news also came with the announcement that EVO does plan to continue expanding across uh, the remainder of 2022. Um, It's something that we're going uh, to be keeping an eye on. Certainly, mergers and acquisitions during the COVID era is something that was, uh, was going to happen. It's interesting to see how this is affecting the cinema entertainment center space. Certainly for the circuits that have more diversified offerings, you know, you're not so dependent on studio output. So that has proven a a boon for them over these last few years. And and we'll be keeping an eye on how this one cinema entertainment center chain uh, progresses over 2022. And actually, Daniel, in, in terms of kind of Keeping track of things in this, uh, let's say, horrible morass of, of terribleness that that 2022 is starting out is Spider Man aside, I'm gonna I'm gonna admit something here that won't necessarily make me sound like I'm great and like I have my my uh, my finger on the pulse of the entertainment industry. <laughs> I didn't realize the Golden Globes happened this weekend.
1: Well, I don't think you're the only one.
2: I forgot about them entirely. <laughs>
1: Is it a bad thing that nobody cares about the Golden Globes anymore? No. Uh, you know, especially this year, they weren't even televised, but to be honest, when they were televised, I'm not sure how many people were tuning in.
2: The only reason to watch the Golden Globes before this were for the the fashions and for the fact that they keep everyone thoroughly lubricated with our alcoholic beverages of choice. You can't drink at the Oscars, you can't drink at the Globes, so you might have Emma Thompson doing something tipsy and funny, but- Other than that, not worth it. Even
1: that concept wasn't that exciting. Had they done, what's that YouTube show that they give everyone like spicy hot wings with like a progressively spicier hot wing? Just give them spicy hot wings and not like no water instead of alcohol. That would have been a better telecast if you like telecast it ever again. Just partner with a YouTube hot wing guys and just ask them inane questions while they eat spicy food. That might be interesting. I might tune into that uh, to our listeners at home. We have to be upfront with you. Award season is probably among the things we like the least covering in this industry, to be perfectly frank. Uh, Even when it comes down to the Academy Awards, I haven't watched that show in years.
2: It's the only one I watch, but I, I still kind of out of a sense of obligation. It's a hate watch for me. (laughs) <laughs> a little bit. Um, I, I watch it and I take notes on what I would have done better. Not that I would ever want to be involved in them.
1: You know who really likes notes? Steven Soderbergh. I'm sure he's going to be very receptive if you just mm-hmm. uh, you know drop him an email from uh, from last year's uh, event that also seemed like a complete afterthought. I was watching a baseball game last year. Listen, t- we can we can joke about it, be a little bit cynical about it, but I think ultimately we do have to take measure of. Parts of film culture that engage a wider part of the audience and get people talking about movies that are in theaters, that get people interested in movies that are in theaters. Even though we don't love award season, that's a big part of that effort, especially when it comes to foreign language films, to art house titles. No matter how many interviews we publish in our magazine, no matter how many filmmakers or, or film festivals uh, we speak to or go to, the impact of these award shows in the general public really helped push that side of the market. Now that that side of the market is going further and further into streaming, it is a concern that I have that the relevance of these type of movies as movie theater experiences is becoming a casualty of a lack of interest in these award shows.
2: I can see that. I I can see, for example, a film that I know you really enjoyed, uh, Drive My Car, won Best Foreign Language Film at the Golden Globes over the weekend without that telecast without people watching and finding out about that movie for the first time probably a lot of them they you know you, you got to imagine that they're missing out on some awareness that they could have had that these foreign and and specialty films are maybe being siloed even more within the community of people who already knew about them.
1: And the other two films that were the big winners at this year's Golden Globes, uh, The Power of the Dog from Jane Campion, distributed by Netflix, and West Side Story from Steven Spielberg that went out through 20th Century Studios, those are titles that could have used that extra bit of buzz, that extra bit of publicity in People that are interested in going to the movies, being able to seek them out. Uh, So, yeah, even though we don't miss uh, the Golden Globes or or any of these award shows, it it is, I think, not a positive development for film culture as a whole. When you have these sort of uh, gateway events that get casual fans of going to the movies once in a while more interested in going to the cinema in film culture, When there's less of them, I don't think that's positive. And we're using uh, this conversation about the Golden Globes as a sort of platform to go into our feature interview for this week, talking to the filmmakers of Paramount's Scream uh, for a bit of a generational reason. It came out at a time when we were both at that age where we were getting really into movies. And I think that movie, with what it's about, going over the legacy of horror movies, the conventions, the tropes, a very playful horror movie, that... Film's release, I think, really informed my own taste for going to the movies and which genres I liked, what type of movie I connected with all those years ago, Rebecca, you mentioned it's one of the movies that wore out your VHS.
2: Oh, yeah, I actually realized uh, speaking to you before recording that I've heard really I've heard good things about this upcoming scream. Um, I saw the director's previous film, Ready or Not, which I really, really enjoyed. But I realized this will be the first Scream film that I see on the big screen. Because really? You
1: missed the, the last two?
2: The first one was my, that was my jam. And I was, uh, my parents were, I was too young to see it in the big screen It came out. <laughs> I did indeed wear out the VHS. Who
1: who rented that from Blockbuster? Which, which one of your older brothers snuck that in? Or did you go to a slumber party where another older? So I think that for us at the age we were in, that was the quintessential older brother rental at Blockbuster, where we got the sneak to see it the first time.
2: I was the older sister who got my younger brothers hooked onto it. <laughs> um, a, a, one time, as a, I, I did sneak uh, the Blair Witch Project into a high, freshman high school sleepover, and my friends' parents uh, were not pleased. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now you do this for a living, so jokes on them.
2: Yep. Uh, but no, I am I am very excited uh, for the upcoming film. I was excited to read your interview in our upcoming January, February issue. I mean, these guys, I, uh, I I trust them with the horror comedy genre. so i'm 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 pumped to see it.
1: I am as well. This is one of those movies that has been on my radar for a while now. It's going to be an interesting take. This is the first time a scream movie is going to be directed by someone other than Wes Craven who was personally involved directing all four other movies in the franchise. But enough of me talking about it. Why don't we hear from the filmmakers themselves. Let's take it away. Tyler, Matt, Chad, Thank you so much for joining us here on the Box Office Podcast. Uh, the filmmaking team behind the upcoming Scream coming out through Paramount Pictures. Guys, I'm super excited to see this movie. I'm a big fan of the original. Uh, so many questions I want to ask you, but let's start with the movie first. Uh, because as fans of this franchise, I saw the trailer and I was really happy to see Familiar Faces back Where are the main characters that we've all grown accustomed to in this movie when your film starts off?
0: Well, first of all, we're thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having us on. I will say that part of the challenge of talking about the movie right now is being able to give satisfying answers to questions without spoiling anything. But what I can say, and you see, certainly see a bit of this in the trailer, is... One of the things that I think we were really excited about and really loved about this script, both as as fans and, and also as the the filmmakers who were taking it on, was to tell the story of where we find those legacy characters 10 years after the last movie. And, uh, you know, Guy Busick and Jamie Vanderbilt, the writers, they did such a beautiful job of answering that question and also really grounding the movie in the, the very real uh, stakes of, how those three individuals have dealt with and struggled to deal with the trauma that they experienced over, over four movies and are now, you know, being pulled back into the mix. For us, that, that was just such a, such an exciting part of what the read was as fans, you know, wanting to know what happened to Sydney and Gail and Dewey. And, and, um, and we think that audiences are going to be absolutely thrilled with how we present that and how we answer that question.
1: And Chad, uh, I want to hear you uh, from you a little bit on how you guys as a filmmaking team came upon this project. How did this land on your desks? And did it take that long for you guys to, to sign on for this film? Uh,
3: wow. That's a, that's a very good story, actually. Um, we uh, obviously we did ready or not with the project X team, which is William Sherrick, James Vanderbilt, Paul Neinstein. And we had an incredible experience with them on that on that movie. And, and we were very, very proud of that movie and doing it for what we could do it for budget wise and, and seeing the results it had in the bigger world. And, uh, we went in for a general meeting that we thought was a general meeting with Gary Barber, who was the head of Spyglass. And, uh, they called to give us a pep talk before it. They're like, guys, just go in, be normal. You know, don't, don't, don't do anything silly. Um, but like, just go in and talk to Gary. And we're like, why did they just call to give us a pep talk before, just a general meeting that like our first time meeting this guy and in the meeting gary did slip that they have the rights to scream and that jane Jamie vanderbilt and guy music would be writing it and when we got out of the meeting we were just like thrilled that two of our friends are writing scream because we're lifelong fans of scream and it's something that you know is near and dear to our hearts in terms of coming up in the horror horror space and everything like that too and then i think it was a little bit after we were into our cars and we're like wait a second what was going on there? What were they doing? And, uh, and and about an hour later, they called us and they're like, "Would you guys like to be a part of this?" It was a very quick. Without question, yes. We, you know, it is one of our favorite franchises of all time, and we couldn't be happier to be a part of it and be making it with people that we really get along with and know share the same sensibilities as we do.
1: Well, I think the the opportunity here can also be a little bit daunting, uh, Matt. From from your perspective coming in as part of this filmmaking team. You're inheriting a franchise from one of the masters in the genre, Wes Craven. How much of a a pressure was that? How did you balance that in the back of your mind as you guys came in to start a new approach with this series?
4: I think it was the most important thing to us throughout the process to be really conscious of how do we honor Wes Craven created how do we expand on that how do we learn and use the tools that we've picked up on from him over the years just as fans to make this next chapter of Scream something that will live up to something hopefully he would have been proud of you know we want to we want to make sure that that's in the DNA of this movie and Guy and Jamie did an incredible job in the script of making sure that that was true on a foundational level so that, so that from there we just had to be really really conscious the whole time of how would West do this? What would West do? You know, that was something we talked about all the time and we immersed ourselves in interviews and books and everything, every little tidbit of information we could get about him. We just embraced it. You know, we talked to all the legacy cast. We talked to Patrick Lussier, his editor on all of them, his wife, everybody we could talk to. And Kevin Williamson, of course, had so much information from West to share with us. And I think, you know, hopefully all of that is in the movie because in a lot of ways it is like a love letter to West while also being pushing the franchise forward. We also wanted to make sure it didn't get stuck like in just nostalgia Mm because that's not something that we think would do the franchise justice.
1: And that's such an important balance to strike, right? And something really tough, I think, for for a movie like this. And building on on what you were saying, Matt, I want to ask all you guys individually to, to chime in on this question. What did you learn to emulate from the sequels? And what did you learn to avoid from the sequels? Because as you're coming in to a to a horror series, and you guys have great experience with the genre. There's always the lessons you pick up and the lessons you learn, maybe not to follow from the people that were there before.
0: You know, one of the things that we just had the advantage of uh, having been fans of of the original four movies was this mu- this sense of muscle memory of what it feels like to be in that. Like scream feeling because it is so specific, right? The, the, what these movies are, the way that they mix tone and genre, it's such a singular thing. I think everybody knows when you say it's a scream movie, like the, the, the mix, the alchemy of things that you're talking about when you mention, when you say that. And so I think for us, what we learned and what those movies really taught us was just to follow that feeling. And this goes back to our first read of the script, right? Like, did it feel like it, was of that same cloth. And that we carried that with us throughout the process as well. You know, every stage of production, it was like, oh, does this feel like a screen movie? Is this the choice that a screen movie would make? And I think you sort of dig into the specificity of that. You know, for us, one of the things that that we really wanted to strive for, and it's one of the things that we love so much about the franchise, is how it's just always playing with and subverting expectation, right? The second that you think the movie is going to go right, it goes left or it goes right much harder than you think it's going to only to then go left at the end. Like we just love that, you know, so much of the experience is being in this wild ride and thinking that, you know, what's going to happen, but also knowing and loving that the movie is probably a few steps ahead of you.
3: And and, and just to just add to that real quick too, I think what they did really well in all four movies was they, they took chances with where everybody is, you know, a year after the first one or two years after the second one, or, you know, seven years, eight years after the third one. And like, we're, even though we all know our roots are w- in Woodsboro, I think every character learns and grows from that in their own way, right? And It stays very true to have that continuity of characters throughout, be it with the, the Gail Weathers or Sidney or Prescott or, or or anybody else, you know, even like Randy Meeks, the way his art goes from the first one to the second one and and diving into the film school of it all, too. It's like their roots are all based in the first one, in the original screen. And I think they did take chances moving forward with the lineage of the show.
1: And Matt, uh, from your perspective, what did you pick up on from the previous movies, and, and what did you want to approach with a new perspective coming into this one?
4: What the guys already said sums up a lot of it, but I think another thing that we really kind of learned from the first ones is that after the first one, which for the three of us is one of the greatest movies of all time, full stop, period. Not a horror, not as a horror movie, or no, no disclaimers, just as a movie. And I think one of the things that we learned is that the the subsequent ones. They all live in that same world. Chad, this is kind of what you were just saying, that the fans of Scream and the people who really love Scream really care about all of those pieces. You know, some, some franchises have ones that everybody just writes off and they don't count anymore and they're, you know, throw them out. Who cares? And with Scream, and I think a large part of that is because Wes Craven directed all four of them. And also cause Kevin wrote three of them that there's, there's a real lineage built into them. And we wanted to make sure that we never let go of that, you know, good or bad or whatever anybody's point of view is on the previous four, we wanted to make sure that ours can stand with those in terms of what the ultimate story is.
1: And that lineage that you talk about, I think is such an important part of what makes Scream special among horror movies within the genre. Uh, when I think of Scream, I think of how it is so willing to play with the formulas of the genre, how it's just very playfully self-reflexive. Uh, what I really like about the series is just how it is a commentary on where horror is at any given point when those movies come out. Even something like Scream 4, I think, addressed a lot of that found footage horror film that we were seeing during its time. Totally. I want, I want to open that up to you guys As huge fans of this genre with a lot of experience working in this horror uh, world, what does your scream have to say about where horror is today?
0: This is, uh, it's a great question. It's also one that's a little bit slippery for us to answer, unfortunately. But I think, (laughs) I think what we, what we can say is that it was one of the elements that we were so excited to see how Jamie and Guy tackled that because that idea How it's self-reflexive, how it's providing some form of commentary about pop culture and the genre and sort of where we're at in a very specific moment in time. It's so hard for that to be mishandled, right? For, for the movie to like be preaching really hard towards that. And we really, we really, really loved how certainly that is absolutely a part of this movie. But you know, it's really at the end of the day, like it's a, a murder mystery. It's a slasher and you're so in it with the characters. That all of that stuff, it certainly is, is working on the story and it's, you know, all of that is there, but it's not so mired in that, that it forgets to be like a thrilling horror movie. And, and that for us was just essential, you know, that you're, you don't find yourself being reminded all of the time that you're watching a screen movie. You just are in the experience with the characters. And the short answer is that is, it's very, very, very much a part of this story. And, um, we're really excited to be able to have these conversations after the movie has come out, because there's a whole lot to unpack, we think, in what the movie is is making a commentary, is providing commentary on.
1: Well, I, I I totally respect uh you wanting to to let the audience find this out for themselves. And I am so happy that this movie is going to be playing in a movie theater where that audience can find that in this communal atmosphere. Of course, in the last year and a half has been just brutal for this industry, for a big part of our audience in trying to get back in business. Now you have another winter season and it had to come out during these days. I'm I'm happy that's that December, January corridor when Scream has always really connected with audiences. Audiences have that opportunity to go to the movies and discover that experience for themselves. For you guys as filmmakers... We know there's a big background of horror in home video. I get that. It plays a role. But you think of The Exorcist. You think of that original Scream. You think of Halloween. These are cultural events at the movie theater. What does it mean for you guys to have this hit movie theaters?
3: I mean, first of all, it's just it's insanely surreal that this movie coming out within days of the 25th anniversary of the original. And, and the fact that we were able to work with our partners, both Spyglass and Paramount, To do a theater only release, giving the, you know, the state of the world in the last, you know, 18 months, 19 months of it all. Like just humbling isn't even a way to put it. Like we just, we're in awe. We're, We're fans. We can't wait to go see it in the theater with a packed theater. And I think that's the best way these movies are watched. Scream, especially, and our scream, I think, will benefit greatly from being in a theater and in an environment where people are having this shared experience at the same time. Because you're going to get the oohs and the ahs, and you're going to get the laughs, and you're going to get the jump scares, and people tossing popcorn because they jumped out of their seat a little bit. and And I think that's the way we approached it, and that's the way we kind of approach all our projects. We want to be in the theater, and we want to have that shared experience, that communal experience. And to be honest, like coming up through the, the midnight screenings at, like, Sundance and also at TIFF and stuff like that, too, where you have, like, be- basically the best fans in the world in the theater are horror fans just because they are so vocal and they are so energized and they are so passionate about their movies. And we're three of them. And I think that's the big approach that we we have to this. I know opening weekend we're going to go from theater to theater and just, like, pop into the places and and just experience Not not just the movie that we made, but experience scream with what larger group and and a larger audience base. It's honestly a dream come true.
0: Yeah, and I would just add to that. I think that there's um, something really profound about the experience of having shared catharsis. I think that people have been experiencing isolation and loneliness in some form collectively over the last you know over the last couple of years, and I think it's why you're seeing movies like Halloween Kills and like Candyman. People are really showing up because I think there's a real, a real desire and a real hunger to not only be back out into the, out in the world, but to be sharing in those loud, vocal, you know, emotional experiences. It's something that we've all missed so dearly. And, um, and to get to be a part of that reopening, that revival, I mean, it's, it's, it's emotional. Honestly, it's a place that I think the movie theater has shaped all of us in such profound ways. Uh, over the course of our lives and to get to have this one open the way that it is and at the time that it is, is truly, truly profound.
4: i also just add that, you know, movie theaters are the last place that I think we go now where we turn ourselves off and we just have an experience, you know, maybe sort of like roller coasters. I don't know where else I can go and not see people on their phones. And I think there's just something so special about being able to dip into the subconscious and to just have that experience uninterrupted, you know, no matter how hard I, I'll just speak for myself, but I try so hard to not look at my phone when I'm watching a movie at home and it's hard, you know, it's almost inevitable that at some point I pick it up and I, I to,
0: to be able to not have that, it's just so special in the world that we live in now. And I think one of the things that we've all talked about since, since that first experience back was how we had to kind of relearn how to just put the phone away and just be focused on on one thing, and how it it was weird and it felt strange and was difficult at first, and then once you're in that experience, the muscle memory of just being in the theater and and just being so singularly focused takes over. It's like truly, just missed it so dearly. I didn't really realize how much I missed it until I was having the experience again.
3: And I, what I was going to say was, I, I mean, I could watch videos of people losing their phones and roller coasters all day, because that's, that, that's really, <laughs> funny. Yeah, that's really, yeah. really yeah. funny.
1: Well, I, I want to thank you guys for joining me. And before we go, I want to close this conversation with with a question out of sheer curiosity, because I have to admit, the first time I saw Scream, the first one, I wasn't old enough to go into it the movie theaters to see it. I saw it at a slumber party. Uh, I was living in Brazil at this time. One of my friends probably got their older brother to rent it. Uh, we saw it. It scared us so much. We had a great time. But by the time Screen 2 came out, I think I bought a ticket for, like, Titanic, like three, four weeks in, and I just snuck in there. There's just, like, a 12-year-old kid by himself somewhere in Brazil just watching this thing. I had a great time watching it on the big screen. And I wanted to ask you guys the same question. Do you remember which screen movie you saw at the movie theaters first and what that experience was like for you guys?
4: I mean, I saw it in in Oakland, California at the Grand Lake Theater, which is my favorite theater in the entire world. It's like the theater that I grew up going to. So I saw basically every movie I loved for the first 20 years of my life there, and Scream was one of them. And it's it's just a wonderful like old school theater. It's so great. There's a wurlitzer before, you know. It's it's like a movie experience from another era. Or at least it was then. It was one of those wonderful theatrical experiences where it is exactly the experience you want in a movie. And I, I just remember it so well. And I, I saw it a couple of weeks after it came out. I got back from the holidays and, you know, everybody was talking about it and it had a lot of word of mouth.
0: My, my experience with the first one was very similar to yours, Daniel. I, I saw it at a slumber party. I was too young, too young to see that first one in a the theater. I was also too much of a chicken shit to see it in the theater. To be perfectly honest. But I was at a slumber party. Someone's older sibling probably rented it and i had the, i remember the same thing just being absolutely terrified but also you know it was so the, my experience with that movie was also uh, is inextricably linked to this the social experience of of seeing it with a group of people and i saw the my first sort of theatrical experience with scream was the second one and it was the same group of people you know it was the same group right. of friends and we were scared the first time and we were all ready to show up and have the exact same experience in the theater for the second one
3: you know, With that opening scene, too,
1: in the movie theater. Oh, man. so good.
0: Yeah. yeah it's the best. Really it's good. the best. Yeah, the first time I saw
3: it, it was in Erie, Pennsylvania, where I was, like, a freshman in college, I think. And, uh like, right after we watched it, we're like, oh, gosh, we got to go again. You know, like, we need to go again. So I think we went, like, not the next day, but the day after, just to let it, like, see it again in that theater. And And honestly, like, hearing the audience's reactions that are seeing it for the first time after the opening happens was just, like, that's something I'll never forget.
1: Fantastic guys, thank you so much for joining me uh for this episode of the Box Office Podcast. This has been the Radio Silence team, the filmmakers behind Scream coming out from Paramount Pictures in theaters worldwide. Thank you so much guys. Thank,
3: thank you. you for having us. Thank you. Thanks it's so a much.
1: Pleasure. That's it for this episode of the Box Office Podcast. If you like what you listen to, don't forget to rate subscribe, like us, share this with someone that doesn't know about this podcast. It's the easiest way for us to continue doing this. You can find out more about Box Office Pro and the exhibition industry on our website, boxofficepro.com. The Box Office Podcast is produced by the box office company, Box Office Pro, and Record Edit Podcast. Tune in next week for our conversation with Vincenzo Guzzo talking about Quebec's cinema closures and what is in store for the Canadian cinema recovery in 2022. On behalf of Rebecca and myself, thanks again for listening.